This is episode three of the Soul of Sensitivity podcast. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed physician or mental health practitioner. I'm your host, Anna Holden, an intuitive, energy alchemist, Ayurvedic health educator, and yoga teacher, as well as the founder of Sensitivity Uncensored and the Sacred Rebellion. Each week on the podcast, I explore different aspects of living a soulful, sensitive life. I'll bring you stories of other sensitive, creative pioneers, as well as my own thoughts, teachings, and tools. This is not the beginner's guide to sensitivity, but rather the place for sensitive souls to gather up their courage and pioneer their way into a life of personal freedom and spiritual sovereignty. Your sensitivity is sacred. Are you ready to live that way? Today, I'm interviewing Suki Baxter, who is, in short, a writer and radical body worker who uses tangible, movement-based practices to examine the parallels between how her clients are moving their bodies and how they're moving through life. She solves the surface problem of helping people move better and the deeper problem of reintroducing them to themselves and getting them back into their bodies. Through her work, she helps change happen by encouraging her clients to embody it through their cells and nervous system, utilizing the body to affect brain tissue through the medium of movement. Suki provides a measurable method of change through the principle of treating the body and the brain as one. Suki works with clients all around the globe through her digital space lab course and the prison break sessions, as well as more intimately through in-person work on location in her Seattle studio. Her work and writing have been featured in media such as Forbes, Mind Body Green, Seattle Metropolitan Magazine, and Practical Horseman. When she's not working with clients, Suki can mostly be found imbibing coffee while elbow deep in dust and mud at the barn with her formerly wild Mustang, Shelby, or alternately, snuggling on the couch with one of her two fluffy felines. Hi, Suki, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. All right. So the first thing I want to draw attention to, Suki, is this incredible, you have this beautiful website at sukibaxter.com. And not only is the imagery just incredible, but I, I love this first message. Your message says, stand taller, take up more space in your body and in your life, um, which is just such a cool connection. Um, and you offer these things that just seem so intriguing. You have these prison break sessions and the space lab and, you know, these articles on how the body and brain don't just talk to each other, but are actually the same thing. Um, and how the body is actually the way to freedom, which I think is such a cool message because we're always hearing how, you know, you need to free your mind and, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, use that. So, you know, do you want to talk a little bit about this message that you've come to and then, you know, a little bit about your background too and how you got there? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So the, the body being um, a portal to freedom was really born out of my own experience and, um, it was for me, I always really wanted freedom. And I had this uh, contentious relationship with my body where I felt like if I could just achieve a certain ideal, then I would be free. And I wasn't feeling free, no matter you know how much weight I lost or how fit I got. I just was always anxious and I always felt not enough and like I didn't measure up um, for all of the reasons that we feel that way about our right. bodies, no matter what is going on with them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I experienced liberation in my movement through body work. And it was really the first time that I started to feel free. And I realized that I didn't have to become anything, that my body already was good and that it was capable. And as my body started to unwind, 
you know, I started to move differently inside my own skin. And as that happened, I was no longer able to tolerate constraint in my life in any way. So I became very aware of the tension in my own body and in other people's bodies. And I became aware that, um, you know, how you move in your body is really connected to how you feel and how you think and how you live your life. And it's been a long journey. This was, you know, over 12 years ago now that I, I first started on this journey. Um, and it's had many shades and, and dips and turns and spirals and loops, but that's um, been the consistent thread throughout this journey. That's just so wonderful. And I love what you say about how you moved inside of your body, because I feel like we, we talk a lot about how we move our bodies, like how, how the body actually moves, but that's really different than how we move inside of our bodies. And I feel like this is a concept that sensitive people, highly sensitive people probably can kind of get, you know, intuitively. Um, but explain a little bit more about what it means to move differently within your body. Yeah, so we all have patterns of movement and we develop them in different ways. They're, they're born of our life experience. You know, I think that we, because we tend to think of our bodies as machines, as like, you know, this sort of car that drives our brain around, we tend to think that they roll off the assembly line and everybody sort of moves the same. Like you, you all start out, you know, we all kind of go through the same movement development stages. We all, you know, most of us generally go through some kind of a crawling stage and then you kind of stand up and teeter and then you can kind of walk, you know, and it's a little different for everyone, but then we're all walking. And mm -hmm. we think, well, like, okay, I can walk. So, you know, walking looks like this, like it's the same person to person to person, but that's not actually true. Everyone has a, a slightly different, um, like a nuance, a style, an accent on their walk, just like we can all paint the same picture and we can all, you know, try to paint a red poppy in a field and it's going to look just a little different. It'll all be a red poppy, mm -hmm. but everyone's is going to come out just slightly, you know, nuanced because it came from your hand and from your thoughts and from your vision. Um, we learn to move based on, you know, our genetics. So our structure determines some of that, how your bones go together, how your muscles go together, the length of your femur, you know, where your femur is oriented to your pelvis, that's all going to play into it. But we also learn based on watching the people around us. So we watch our primary caregivers and we have actual neurological shortcuts in our brains that when you watch somebody else move, it lights your brain up in the same way as though you had actually done the movement yourself. So when you're, when you're watching your parents or your primary caregivers, whether they're related to you or not, um, move around the world, you're patterning after them. And that, that serves two purposes. You can become much more efficient in your movement, but also it's a form of belonging. You know, you move like your tribe. So it, it spins out to the culture as well. You know, we move like our caregivers, but we also move like our, our cultural tribe. And that can be a local culture. It can be um, a culture of dance. It can be a culture of personal trainers. It can be a culture of yoga practicers or people who sit in an office. You know, all of those things, all of those, those places in which we move will influence how we move and the acceptable ways to move. Um, and they'll in influence that accent that you have on your movement quite a bit. Oh, that's, that's just real. That's brilliant. It, Cause it, it's just bringing to mind, um, you know, well, both of us actually have an office in a, a certain neighborhood called Fremont in Seattle. And, you know, I, I, when you say that, I think about when I see different groups of people walking around and there's a way that I could be like, oh, they work at a tech firm or yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> or, oh, programmers or gym, yeah. gym people. Yes. And yeah. trainers have a really distinctive pattern generally right. as well. And right. it's different from men to women. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, people like I used to live in Spain a long, long time ago um, when I was in college. And, you know, I could look down the beach, which was like miles long and see somebody walking so far away that I couldn't actually see their features or their clothes and say, that person's American. Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. I think, I think that that's getting a little more diffuse as our world is more digital and more connected and that we're seeing more exposure to people uh, more globally. But mm -hmm you know, you can, you can see a lot about how a person moves and, and read a lot into that. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's a really great background. And I, I think, thank you for explaining that because I think it kind of, um, kind of sets the stage for some of what we're talking about, how the, the body and the mind are just not only connected, but the same thing. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of ways we could take this conversation, Suki. And I think that, um, you know, one of the things that comes to mind when I look at your website is, um, and, and I know you personally, but when I look at the website, there's all these offerings for, you know, breaking free, finding freedom, um, and kind of an assumption, um, or at least it gives me the assumption that like, oh yeah, like I'm stiff and tight, you know, and I know that this is like a, a complaint that I'm feeling as I'm getting older and my husband says, and like, oh, I just get, you know, stiffer or tighter. And so as I look at the website and hear what you say, it makes me question, well, is that actually a function of my body or is that a function of my mind? Like, you know, what's going on there? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think that the both, um, both elements are at play there because mm -hmm. there are tissue changes as you get older. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, as you get older, the, the structure of your tissue changes to become less elastic. Mm -hmm. And that's just physiology. So it does happen. Now, that being said, I work with people who are in their 70s who are super athletic and move mm -hmm. better than some of my clients who are in their 20s. So mm -hmm. I don't think that it's necessarily like, oh, at this age, you're going to be, you know, this much stiffer. Um, but it is a fact that we have to look at, you know, we, we can't slow the change in our tissue because that's just part of being alive. Um, I did hear some research that they're able to do that in a lab with like worms or something, but um, <laughs> I mentioned it to a friend of mine who's a doctor and he said, yeah, the same, I, I don't remember the gene because that's, that's not my, my specialty, but the gene that they mess with is like the same gene that gets mutated to cause cancer. So oh, <laughs> they're not going to mess with that one. <laughs> so yeah, it's, 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 I mean, it's, it's like, they can kind of do it in a lab, but like it wouldn't be healthy to do it in people. It's just part of our, our life cycle is that, you know, our bodies change as we get older. Um, but that being said, I think that there can be a lot of clues in our movement and our stiffness and our patterns of tension to the places in which we've shut ourselves down. You know, the places in which we don't feel because it's scary or unpleasant um, or the desires that we've, we've put a wall between us and, and that, you know, that feeling or that urge, that desire, um, you know, a lot of times people will think about like if you're sitting in an office and you're really unhappy in that office and your desire is to get up and leave, like, what would your dream be to just like get up and walk out and never go back? or something like that. Mm -hmm. And if you, if that's the thought that you're having over and over again, then every time you have that thought, your muscles prepare to do that. And then there has to be an overriding muscular contraction to be like, no, you're going to stay in this chair. Uh... So it's, it's almost like you're literally holding yourself into that chair. Now, I'm not saying that every single person who works in an office is unhappy because there are people who love their jobs, but yeah, that's one scenario yeah. um, where every time you're around a certain family member and you just want to like scream at them because they drive you so crazy and you clench your, your chest and your shoulders and, and clump down on your throat, you know, that can result in sort of a hunching or a tightness or tissue density in the areas that tighten up every single time repeatedly. You know, and what strikes me about this is that we can, you know, we may be aware that we really hate our job or that this person brings us tension, but there could be you know, a lot of scenarios where this type of um, unhappiness is just kind of running in the background of our lives. Yeah. And I think that's where you start to get into these bigger umbrellas that we live under, these um, cultural and social constructs that we live within, you know, mm -hmm. um, the definition of a work week. You know, we all are brought up with this idea that we should work this 40-hour work week and it should look like, you know, X, Y, Z, and that that is a, um, an admirable pursuit to have a work week that looks you know, like what's put in a book. And, and I mean, you know, you and I both know living in this techie city that it's not even a 40 hour work week anymore. It's a 60 hour minimum work week and probably more than that. So um, we have, we have social and cultural beliefs ar around sleep and around rest and about replenishment. Mm -hmm. And you can have these feelings of guilt or shame around, you know, not like calling in sick to work because you just need a day off or, um, even just getting enough sleep. I know people who just, you know, they're so proud of themselves for getting like four or five hours of sleep a night, but they just feel horrible all the time. Yeah. And yeah. so, and so you're kind of saying that 
these social social constrictions when they're not really working for us can actually create patterns of tension or stiffness or something within the body. Oh, for sure. A hundred percent. So then, oh, this is just so fascinating. So then how do you think that this can impact us highly sensitive people whose nervous systems are processing even more stimuli? Yeah. I think highly sensitive people need to be really aware of the, um, the contracts that they make with society. Uh, It's, you know, none of us are going to, I I actually, I'm obsessed with freedom and I also am a realist. I, I understand that we all have to have like rules and constructs in order to exist in a society that functions for everyone. Because if we were all totally free, then, you know, there's nothing to stop me from going out and like murdering my neighbor who parks over the line in my parking spot or something, you know, just because I'm irritated yeah. or whatever. It's, you know, it, there's, if there's no rules, then, um, you know, then, then we're not helping the people who need help. We're not, we're not joining together. We're not a team. Right. And we all need to be a team, um, especially as global as, as the world's becoming. Global members, yep. So, you know, so there has to be that, but you have to be truly aware of when you're buying into that system and saying, yes, I will agree to give my energy here. And when you're saying like, no, this is not working for me. So, you know, for example, my, like, I don't really do New Year's resolutions, but at the beginning of the year, I kind of reassess what's working and not working. And for me, like one of the things I'm working on this year for myself is getting more sleep. Mm-hmm. And so I've changed my work hours. Um, I've switched my, my sleeping area up a little bit. You know, I've removed my phone from my bedroom, things like that so that I can get more sleep. And I've created systems where I can sleep as much as I need, which is more than the culturally allotted, you know, six or seven hours maximum that we really you know, believe we should only get. Right. Um, right. You know, and that's, that's so wonderful. And I feel like one of the biggest issues for highly sensitive people is kind of coming up against these social contracts that they've kind of, or that we've kind of subconsciously agreed to and just feeling like it's impossible or really, really hard to break this contract. Um, a lot of times because we get kind of early messages that were not good enough anyway, or that other people's needs or um, rules come before our own comfort um, and things like that. But so, so how do we start? I mean, how do we even start to work with that when we um, even recognize we're coming up against this like social rule that's not working for us? How do we confront that? And how do we start to create space for what we need? It's hard. It's not an easy thing. And this is why I don't think that, um, I don't think freedom is binary. Like a lot of things, Mm -hmm. I think it's a spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, for me, it started with just being able to move my body a little bit more. And then when I could move my body more freely, it became much easier for me to say, no, I won't do this thing. Hmm. So, you know, for example, I, I left the corporate world. I, I grew up, I should have had the most normal life. I had everything. I was middle class, you know, I went to college. I got the degree, like everything in my life was set up for me to have a corporate job, probably management at this point, you know, doing, I don't know. I don't know whatever, making widgets or something. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. But, but it was fortunate that I'd had enough corporate experience early in my life that when I found myself after college in a corporate job and I was also receiving the body work and my body started to unwind, I was able to look at that and say, this social construct is not something I choose to participate in. And I was able to make a turn, but it wasn't easy because I had to um, negotiate the the expectations of my family, you know, I was the smart one. I was the one who was going to be successful, whatever that means. Oh girl. Yeah. I still have guilt about that. You know, I still feel like there's this alter ego inside me that needs to be wearing corporate suits and like showing up at work every day. And like, if I could accomplish that, then like, Oh, I'd be acceptable to the world. Uh But but I would be miserable and unhealthy and probably struggling with adrenal fatigue. So, Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of a long and roundabout way of saying that you, you have to work at a very personal level, which for me, you know, in, in my world and in the work that I do starts at the body level, which I feel is one of the most personal things there is. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to unwind those, um, those things that are constraining you 
that they may seem unrelated to the bigger picture, but you have to get yourself to a place where what you're feeling in your own skin is it just doesn't jive with the things that aren't working for you. And then the exit is easy. Mm-hmm. Well, I just, I love that. I love this idea that you offer that we can start from the body because I think sometimes when we're facing this, uh, you know, this conflict in our lives, it, it can feel, you know, it can feel like anywhere we start, we're just going to get backlash. But when we start in the body, right, the, the only where the only place we can get backlash in the body is from our from ourselves. Yeah. Right. And, and the body, I, I don't want to say that the body doesn't lie because the body can give you mixed messages. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it always says it's, it's always telling you truth, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that truth is like, for example, people say like, oh, I feel fear. Well, you know, that fear doesn't necessarily mean it's the wrong thing to do, but it might be the fear of losing some security or support elsewhere in your life. You know, if you yeah. go down this road, so, right. so it can give you these mixed messages. Um, but as you, it's a way of getting to know yourself, right? Like, I feel like we're so disconnected from who we are as people. And we're so knocked about, you know, right and left and upside down by marketers who try to sell us on these products and and services that will, you know, somehow they tell us that they'll make us free. Uh, But they're not in alignment with who we are. And we don't even know who that person is anymore. And when you get in touch with your body and you really make friends with it and you really like start to understand its own language, then it can be a lot clearer, especially for highly sensitive people who are have, I mean, there's so much information available to highly sensitive people, right? Because there's the feelings are crystal clear. They're very strong. There's no doubt that that is what you are feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, highly sensitive people have the ability to be extremely precise in in their you know felt sense mm-hmm. um, and their emotional sense. So mm-hmm. getting to know your body at that level can make it so much easier to escape from these prisons that we're in because it's just, I mean, the body is just like, it's giving you the answer. It's giving you the clear message right there. And you can tell it, you can be like, no, no, be quiet body. I would like to sit here in this chair longer and let my blood coagulate and my, <laughs> and my heart crystallize a little bit more, Uh huh. but it's not going to lie. You know, it's, yeah. it's going it's to tell you the truth about where you should be. You know, I just love this. It's something that I remind, um, something I remind my clients of a lot is, you know, I, I work in the subtle realm mostly and, and, you know, I have this belief that what happens physically first had a more subtle component that preceded it. Um, and so I kind of tend to work in this subtle realm with the idea that, you know, we, we shift some belief patterns, we shift some of the things in the subtle, subtle realm, and then we create space for the physical body or our physical reality to shift. But I'm often reminding people, we can work from the other, the other way too. And I think that sometimes us highly sensitive people, we're so in that subtle world that we almost forget we have a body or we, <laughs> or we forget that that's actually an avenue to freedom because we're so stuck in our heads and in that subtle, subtle realm. And, yeah. and I think people are often surprised when I'm like, you need to go do this body therapy. Well, you're like a healer. Don't you want to just be there? And it's like, no, 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 no. Like you also have a body. Yeah. Well, I I think that that comes from this cultural belief that like, you know, anything energetic is more ascended than the body. (laughs) Right. Which is bullshit. And well, so there's a really great book um, and I'm going to probably get the guy's name wrong. I think it's Guy Claxton is the author. It's called Intelligence in the Flesh. And he talks about the history of basically disembodiment. And it started back with the church where, you know, people had the body and then there was the soul and the soul was, you know, above the body and much more pure. And, and the church wanted everything to do with the soul. And also it was a really great way to control people because, you know, it was like, you can't let your carnal instincts take over. You have to do these things that are kind of unnatural. Like it's, it's very biological to want to kind of like have a lot of kids and sleep with a lot of people, you know, but no, you can't do that. (laughs) Right. Right. You know? And, and so um, they kind of, they, they, carved out this separation of like, there's the body and there's the soul. And then we entered the age of reason, you know, much later on. And the soul was no longer something that was universal. Not everyone was going to church or not the same church. Um, And there were many paths to spirituality and science kind of became the overarching religion 
Mm -hmm. so to speak. And so the soul converted into the mind or the intellect, but we still have that same construct of the, you know, the mind and the intellect being above the body or more, I don't know, more enlightened than the body. Absolutely. You know, and I'll see this too in the Eastern traditions, you know, coming from a yoga and Ayurvedic background and then energy medicine, where um, there's a lot of focus on kind of the up and out channel, right? On, on, um, trend, on transcendence, on transcending the body and moving into a state of bliss through really activating the higher chakras, you know, which are um, more subtle energy have to do with thought and inspiration and connection to divine and whatever. But the the more that I look at this, it was just, like you said, it was just the focus of the day. You know, it was like the goal at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what I see for sensitive people is that we're, we're already in that subtle world and we really need to work on this sense of embodiment on actually grounding the information that we're getting in our bodies because we are living in the physical world in these bodies. Yes. Right? So, yes, you know, here always, and now. Yeah, here and now, like right now. <laughs> and so I'm always focused on, okay, like actually your, you know, your lower three chakras are not bad. Your body's not bad. Your urges are not bad. Pleasure is like this wonderful thing that we often, because of these, again, old social contracts, we really um, avoid, you know, I, there, I can't even count the number of times that I've um, worked with a client and been like, you need pleasure in your body. I mean, and that can mean sexual pleasure, but it's like, you just need to move in a way that's pleasurable. Yeah. Well, I know we've talked about this before and um, we've talked about the fact that in our culture, it's not really acceptable to feel anything besides pain, right? Yes. And, and so I think it's really interesting that you, that you immediately made that jump from like, you know, pleasure. You say that word to somebody and they immediately go, oh, like sex? Like that's the only place where pleasure is acceptable. And then, and then we're so messed up around that, you know, I mean, know. that could be a whole other podcast. <laughs> it is, it is. Yeah, let's not dive too far um, down that rabbit hole today. But, you know, we're, we're so, we don't even know what pleasure is. And I, I have this with my clients a lot where I'll, I'll say, you know, lift your arm. And they'll say like, like this, am I doing it right? And it's like, well, how does that even feel? Yeah. Is there a way in which that movement would be nourishing to you? Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, I mean, at first people are like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, and I, I get it because I've been there. Uh-huh. But when you start to get to know your body, you know, you will find that there, you'll, you'll just move. You'll have these urges to move and you'll be like, oh, that feels as nourishing as it does to eat food when I'm hungry. You know how good food tastes when you're really hungry? Mm-hmm. And there are movements that you will do that it's like, oh, like this is satisfying some deep urge for a sensation yes. that I didn't even know I had. Yes. And you know, that's, that's pleasure. And it, it's, it can be sexual, but it doesn't have to be. There's a huge three-dimensional spectrum of sensation that is available to us. And pain is only one tiny little corner of it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, pain is at, I I think, kind of at that, that end of the constriction scale, you know, so constricting and pleasure in when we get, when we allow pleasure can create so much opening and so much, like you said, satisfaction and, you know, more of that, that freedom. And so, um, yeah, I really like what you're saying here about, um, you know, using movement um, as a satisfaction and using how we move in our body to take up space. So there's this concept <laughs> that, that's around and, and I talk about it too, um, but it's this concept of like, you know, taking up your space and living fully or living to your full potential, you know, and kind of this push to, to think and act and be and live bigger. Um, and I, I want to talk about this concept um, within the kind of the bubble of what we're talking about here. So there's this idea out there that, you know, highly sensitive people are weak, which I think is totally bogus, but I think we are 
kind of fragile, you know, and, and I like to think we're fragile like a bomb rather than fragile than a snowflake. Um, but let's talk about this concept. You know, what is that fine line between reaching our potential, taking up the space that's available to us and pushing with effort, you know, to be something bigger than we really want to be? I think that's the dance. Mm. I think that, I think that there's not one answer for that. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, like I was saying, the freedom, freedom's not binary. It's a spectrum. Mm -hmm. And that's one aspect of it is that, you know, you get to determine how big your life is. And for some people, I mean, that might be moving to a cabin with no electricity and running water mm -hmm. on, you know, acreage and growing your own vegetables and raising chickens and like living a subsistence lifestyle. And that might be really owning your space and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And for another person, it might be like traveling the world and speaking at big conferences or becoming a famous actor or, you know, I, and anything. It could be like going for the Olympics to be an Olympic athlete. It could be, you know, what we tend to think of as more exalted goals. Um, so I think that, you know, owning your space starts in small ways mm -hmm. from like setting up routines or structures that serve you in your life. Like I was saying, for me, getting more sleep. Mm -hmm. um, and it can be in big ways in setting really big goals. I think it's just as big a goal to move to acreage with no electricity or running water as it is to, you know, become a famous person or something. Yeah. And I mean, the, the thing that I'm hearing in this is it's not just take up space, it's take up your space. Yes. Right. Figure out what is yours and yeah, then and fill that. It comes back to those contracts again, like that you have with society, right? So what is the contract and in what ways are you willing to fulfill it? And in what ways are you not willing to fulfill it? And what ways don't work for you? Yeah. And, you know, for one person, I mean, it, who's a very shy and quiet, introverted person, that can just be saying, you know what? I don't really like going to concerts. They overstimulate me. They overwhelm me. I'm not going to do that anymore. And when I get invited, I'm not going to feel bad about saying no. And I'm going to invite that friend to get tea with me sometime instead. Or totally. we're going to have, I'm going to set up art parties where, you know, I have a couple of friends come over and we make art together. That would be really nourishing to me. And I'm not going to have this guilt about how I should be this like party going, you know, dance party, you know, <laughs> addict or something like that. Um, totally. And, and, you know, it's, it's interesting how as people um, release the constrictions in their bodies, how these things just start to feel more natural. It just You just don't, you get into that concert or whatever scenario doesn't feel right. And you just are like, I don't want to be here right now. Mm -hmm. It's just super clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and because I, I, I have this big belief that, you know, the world needs highly sensitive people. You know, and so I'm kind of making this call for like, we need to show up, but I'm not, I don't mean that we need to show up all as activists, you know, putting out our most vulnerable parts of our life on social media. It's like, no, we need to show up in a way that honors us, in a way that breaks social contracts uh, to, to honor us so that we create more permission for, um, all lifestyles, right? Right now, our, our social constructs are built on someone's idea of what a lifestyle should look like. And it was not a sensitive person, right? Who created these, <laughs> these Right? And so, so when, you know, I, I think what I take when, when I see these messages and when I'm talking about these messages of like, let's be bigger, let's show up, it's like, let's figure out our place in this and live that, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and I, live it fully without guilt, you know, without shame, yes. without guilt and without apology. And one of the ways in which I see people not taking up their space is um, apologizing with their movement and highly sensitive people for sure. Um, quite often women, also men, although the patterns tend to be a little bit different, but women have a really obvious one that is, is super common where somebody they'll, they'll make a statement, but, you know, she'll say something and then duck her head, you know, a little bit like, oh, sorry, I said something. Sorry, I said that. So, you know, 
you know, I'm going to say something, but, oh, but you don't have to take it seriously. Don't jump down my throat for saying that, you know? And so one, one of the ways in which changing your movement can be really helpful is, is you start to notice those little things. You're like, oh, I don't have to, you know, shrug my shoulders and kind of hunch and duck my head every time I say something that somebody else might not agree with, Mm -hmm. you know, or somebody invites me to that concert and I'm like, oh, I don't really want to go. Sorry. You know, duck my head and hunch Uh, my shoulders and and make myself smaller. Um, It's just, I don't want to go. Yeah. (laughs) You know, that's not really what I want to do. How about we do this other thing? Would that be of interest to you? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what you're saying is like sensitive people showing up and being like, this is, this is what's true for me. I'm not going to apologize for it. Mm -hmm. This is how I'm living. I'm comfortable in my skin, in my life, in my world. This is what works. And I think that what's great is, you know, Suki and I are good friends and we practice this with each other, <laughs> yeah. all, right? We're all, um, you know, we've all done this before. We're all kind of underneath these social constructions. And so I, I've seen us, you know, I've said like, oh, something. And then I say, oh, sorry. And, and then you're like, don't say sorry. And I'm like, right, sorry. I mean, wait, <laughs> yes. right? we get to practice, right? We get to practice this. And so, yeah, I love what you're saying. And, you know, something else we wanted to talk about too, is there's this message out there, this other social contract about, we need to just get through. We need to just push. We need to just get to your edge and like find that, that pain and just push through. Can we talk about what this messaging does to not just sensitivity, but to our body? I call it the cult of extremity in all things. (laughs) I love that. Um, But you see, I mean, this, it's, it's probably my, one of my biggest frustrations, if not, it's right at the top of the list, top three. Um, Uh And it's, it's born of, um, it's very American, actually. You don't find it as much, at least in my little bit of traveling, like when I'm in Europe, I don't, I don't feel that there is as much push. Um, but there's a lot of seepage of our work culture into other cultures. So it's probably becoming more global. Mm-hmm. And I think it's this idea of, you know, uh, like almost like a meritocracy that if we just work hard enough, we can achieve whatever it is that will make us good. Like we'll finally get that gold star. Um, and this idea that like you work hard now and you can rest later, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I mean, we even say that, right. I'll sleep when I'm dead, which sounds. Yeah. Awful. That sounds like, no, what that is, is <laughs> what that is, is I'm going to work myself to death. That's yeah. what that is. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, we have, a, we have this cult of extremity in all things. It's, uh, we see it in fitness. Um, I heard, recently heard a statistic that young people are getting joint replacements at an astonishing rate now because of the extreme sports that people in their like 20s are getting hip replacements Um, because we have this idea that if we just push hard enough then we can fix things Mm. but it doesn't work that way from a neural perspective it's very detrimental because pushing really hard activates your sympathetic nervous system so you go into your fight or flight mode which is useful you need that Um, we do this all day you know we go in and out of fight or flight on little micro levels, you know, I'm hungry. Okay. I'm motivated to go find food. I found food. Ah, relaxation, super micro fight or flight. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're chronically in fight or flight, then you get all this adrenaline. Um, your body can't repair itself. You never get any rest or relaxation. And eventually you fall off the deep end and that's where you have all these health issues and problems. And then people are like, I don't know why I having adrenal fatigue and Suddenly well, and, well, and fairly, they've been following the rules. Yeah. They feel like they've been following the rules. And it's like, yeah. what did I do wrong? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's not, it's not the people that are the problem. It's the right. culture, right? That's why it's right. the cult. Right. Because we don't, we don't know that we're kind of baked in this culture of extremity. We have yeah. no idea. And we're constantly being told. I mean, I can't tell you how many times in my Instagram feed, I see these like, you know, um, you can have rock solid abs in like seven minutes a day, or this is the most aggressive like if I never see another video of a person flipping a tire again, I'll be happy. If you want to go flip tires, I have no problem with that. I love strength training. I think it's awesome. I like to do it. It feels great. But like we're being marketed to that. Like it's, if, if it's not the most extreme version, it's not worth doing. And if you're not doing the most extreme version, whether that's fitness or work or even play, like, you know, like extremely, like going out and climbing mountains where you might die, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, or like, I've got so many people who hike up 
um, mountains to ski down in like the back country. And I'm sort of fascinated by this because it's super dangerous. Oh, I love that country skiing, but that's yeah. Topic. Yeah, 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 no, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, I've seen it rise. It's yeah. interesting to have seen it rise over the past 12 years to where, you know, people were just like doing normal workouts and now it's like people are coming in and if they're not doing the most extreme version. Earn your turns, you know. Yeah, they just, yeah. they don't feel like it's good enough. Like it's not, it's not okay to just go skiing and enjoy it, mm-hmm. you know, or if you like doing extreme stuff, like I said, if you want to flip tires or hike up mountains to ski down them. There's nothing the feeling, wrong but with I that. think that that's really different than feeling compelled that you yes. must. Yes. That there's this idea that if you're not doing the most extreme, mm-hmm. then it isn't worth doing at all. And I think social media does perpetuate that because we're always posting pictures and, you know, yeah. Just- well, and then totally. And I think that this, this actually plays into um, a lot of the life coaching and um, spiritual cultures as well, where there can really be this culture of, um, of action. If you're not taking action, if you're not pushing through this next step that you're on, then you're just in resistance. Then you're just, you know, avoiding the blah, 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 which yeah. I think is so can be so damaging to highly sensitive people because what I've noticed, and we can relate this back to the body here too, is that, you know, a lot of times for highly sensitive people, when we are uh, quote unquote resisting, when we are hesitating, it's not because our egos are just in resistance. We're taking in so much information. We have some information about why we're hesitating. So there can be this, this kind of intelligent pause. Yeah. Right. Because we're, you know, we, we don't have the luxury of not really listening to our nervous system. You know, our nervous system is on all the time. And so sometimes when we're pausing, whether that's in, you know, an, an academic pursuit in a, a personal growth pursuit or in a physical pursuit, there's an intelligence behind that. And so this, this message to just push, 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 push can, can again, make us feel like we're doing it wrong. You know, like we're doing life wrong. Right. And, and also, I mean, this is, this is on every level, but motion for motion's sake is just flailing, you know? So if if you're just taking action because you think you need to take action, you can take all the actions in the world, but if they're not the right actions, they're not going to get you a result. And I see this, um, from a body perspective, I see this in people's actual movement in their nervous system in their programming where I say, raise your arm to the side and they flail. They'll like, they move so quickly, they'll snap their arm up or turn your head to the right. And it's like, I'm so eager to get my head turned to the right that I do it so quickly that I'm not paying attention to the stops, right? So that's what I'm looking for when I'm assessing someone's movement is like, okay, slowly turn your head to the right. I'm looking at what's grabbing. I'm looking at the quality of the movement. I'm looking where the soft stop is because there's usually a soft stop and a hard stop. These are things that you can't feel if you're moving that quickly. So you lose a lot of information if you're just taking action for action's sake. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're also just exhausting yourself. Mm -hmm. And I have an analogy on this from from an athletic perspective. I used to be a rower. And um, so one of the things about rowing is that it's very technique heavy. But when you go to the gym and you see people using the rowing machines, they don't know how to use them. I'd say largely, they don't know how to use them properly. And most people, even if they have, you know, moderately good technique, don't really understand the dynamics of a boat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was doing a workout um, at a gym that was coached with a rowing machine not very long ago, maybe a year ago. Mm-hmm. And we were trying to get, I don't remember what the number was, the calories or meters that we were trying to accumulate. But as I was rowing really hard, I was, I could see the people to either side of me just going faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. They were flailing. My speed actually got slower and my output got higher. So the Mm. rowing machine has this little digital readout on it that will tell you like how many meters you're covering or how many calories you're burning, which is an estimate, but yeah, you know, it has some metric of output mm-hmm. for like how much force you're generating mm-hmm. as you go. My force generation went up as I was able to slow my speed and find rest in the stroke of going front to back. And I was able to keep up with people who are much more fit, much more physically fit and actually stronger than me simply by being really precise with my technique and being really efficient. 
And I think this is what we miss out on when, you know, life coaches or whoever is telling you just take action, take action, take action is like, is it right action? Is it efficient action? Is your output, is, is the force generated by this action actually worth the amount of effort you're putting into it? Mm-hmm. Or are you just exhausting yourself? That's such a brilliant question. And I mean, you can relate it just to what you're doing, which is like the exercise um, piece or the, the body piece. But I can just see the how we can extrapolate that into so many different areas of our life. And, you know, I think that um, for a lot of us highly sensitive people, we have an answer to that. You know, we have an answer. Is, is this worth the output that I'm putting in? Um, and it can you know, kind of take a while to get the confidence to, to validate that hit that we're getting, that intuitive hit, mm-hmm. you know, because like you said, we have to oftentimes go against these social contracts that we're in. So, yeah, I mean, and what I kind of hear you saying about the body and creating space in the body is that a lot of it is about um, working with the nervous system. Yeah. Yeah. I've always felt like the nervous system was a key piece, even. um, So I studied rolfing with Ida Rolf and, or not with her, but you know, that was her, her work. She's passed away before I was born, but Mm -hmm. um, I studied that. And then as soon as I started my practice, you know, they're like, oh, you're working with fascia, you're working with fascia. And like day five, (laughs) I was like, I think there's a nervous system component here. And so that's been a huge pursuit of mine throughout, you know, it's been a common thread that I've followed throughout my Um, education and and everything that I've done. Yeah. And I love the way on your blog that you weave together experience of your clients, your personal experience, and then the research between like brain body and nervous system body. And it's a really, it's just such a unique perspective. I don't see it um, elsewhere out there. And I think it's just a really important perspective, especially for us sensitive folks who are really working to build a life free from these social constraints or, or really more in alignment with the, with the social contracts that work for us. It's a really important perspective to have in mind and to utilize, you know, while we're moving this way. I think it's really helpful to understand how things work in the body, um, Mm -hmm. to have some concept of the biology, which is one of the reasons that I think, as you mentioned, highly sensitive people are often really connected to spirit um, you know, to mm-hmm. energy, to the more ethereal realms, mm-hmm. and also to emotions, because highly sensitive people feel emotions so strongly that they yeah. have to, I mean, you can't ignore them because they're so present. Right. Um, so most highly sensitive people have a lot of literacy around those areas, and they don't have literacy around the biology of what's going on. Right. Um, and I find that that's really helpful for people to understand like, oh, this stress that I'm feeling, what's happening in my body is that it's a sympathetic nervous system activation, mm-hmm. Right. And to, to have that sort of, it's almost clinical, like a almost clinical understanding of what's going on, I think can be, um, it can make it easier to take a step back to see all the pieces together, right? Because we can come into a situation, like you said, from the body or from spirit or from emotions mm-hmm. um, or from imagery. And any one of those can also be like a broken link, like we might not have access to it. Mm-hmm. So sometimes when you can step back and see how the elements fit together, you can see what's missing. Mm-hmm. You can see what information could be available. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see, I mean, it's kind of like when you stare at a, you know, a picture, if you put it two inches from your face, you have no idea what you're looking at. But if you can back up and look at the whole thing, then you can see what's happening. You can see how different pieces are related to one another and how they work synergistically. Absolutely. And I mean, another way that, uh, you know, as you talked about that, the way I see it is like, well, having that language of the body is a way to ground the information of the experience. You know, it's a way to embody it, right? It's a way to, yeah, see the bigger picture for Mm -hmm. what it is. It's also a good way to get outside of should, because (laughs) we're with so many people who come in and they're like, I, you know, um, What's a good example? I've like, never said that before. <laughs> <laughs> we all do it. I've been told by like somebody, you know, I should stand more like this. Well, should you? Should you tuck your pelvis like that? Does that feel more comfortable? I don't know. I have, I don't know. Well, what feels good in your body? Well, this feels comfortable, but I know my Pilates teacher told me that this was bad for my back. Well, is it, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, it, so it gets you outside of, of that should, because it might be, um, 
for example, I studied with uh, Liz Koch, who wrote the SOAS book and Core Awareness. Love and her. she she talks, yeah, she's fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. She talks about how sometimes the body has an expression that it needs to finish, right? So, okay, so your shoulders are hunched forward and you know you should stand with your shoulders more, more back. Well, maybe you need to curl into the fetal position and give your body a chance to express sorrow or grief or protection or whatever that is that it needs to express. And then when you allow it to have that expression, it can open up and you don't have to try so hard. You don't have to pull your shoulders back and hold them there. They just relax there. It's like you were talking about, you know, way earlier when you're talking about sitting in an office job that you hate and how you're keeping yourself from the expression your body wants to have. You know, as you just said that, like curling in the fetal position, I was just like, oh God, that sounds so good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, I mean, it might be the fetal position. A lot of times it is, but it might be warding off. It might, or it might be stretching out. It might, you know, it could be anything Mm -hmm. and really exploring those. Um, it gives you permission to, and confidence too, right? Like permission to feel good and the confidence to say what feels good and, and what doesn't and to, um, to take in information but not get committed to somebody else's idea of how you should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so a lot of these ideas that you're talking about, Suki, you have kind of in program form and video form in your space lab. Is that correct? Yeah. So my space lab program is a little bit interesting. It's, um, it's a video suite. It's got 20 videos in it. And um, each video walks you through a practice and you could call them exercises, but I prefer practice. (laughs) (laughs) And they're, they're stretches and movements and um, different ways of releasing patterns in the body and also exploring the patterns in the body. So Mm -hmm. each video comes with a little, um, the whole, the whole space lab comes with a workbook and each video has its own little section with some explanation as to what we're doing, why we're doing it, how this movement relates to the bigger picture of moving through your life, and then, you know, questions to consider after you've done the practice so that you can really develop that relationship with yourself of, you know, oh, I didn't realize I was tight here. I didn't realize I couldn't turn my head to the right. And now that I can, I notice I can breathe more easily or whatever um, it may be. I didn't notice I was storing tension in that part of my body. And uh, now that it's gone. I, I really realized that I feel freer. And hey, when I go to my job that I hate, I notice that tension comes back. Hmm, there's a lesson in there for me. <laughs> totally. So, so it's kind of putting you in that spot where I was, you know, when I first started this journey of like, wow, I don't even know my body. Um, so let's do some movement. Let's, let's ask the body some questions. Can you move like this? How would it be if you did? And, you know, why, if you can't, why not? And what's that yeah. about? What things yeah. do you have to tell me? Yeah. And so you're offering um, our listeners uh, a little bit of uh, information from the Space Lab. Is that right? Yeah. If they go to sukibaxter.com forward slash soul, they can get access to a video uh, that is a module from the Space Lab. It's not a full module. It's a full video lesson with the the little um, excerpt from the workbook that they can download as well and watch the video and go through the movement activity and get a little taste of what, what it's like. Awesome. So I'll make sure to put that link in the show notes. So um, those of you who are interested can take advantage of that. But I'm curious, Suki, would you be willing to guide us through like a little mini session to help us kind of understand the space that we're taking up and the space we're capable of filling? Yeah, absolutely. So um, don't do this if you're driving. I was just going to say, obviously, if you're driving, please... (laughs) Save this for a later date. Yeah. Um, but for listeners who are in a place where they can um, stop what they're doing and have a moment where they're not going to be interrupted, if you just want to have a seat somewhere, I find that it can be easier to do this while seated, or you can also do it while lying down if that's more comfortable. Um, just put your attention on your breath. And one of the questions I love to ask is what shape? does your breath make in your body? So as you let your breath come in, what areas does it fill up? You can find out how deep it goes. It can be very high in your chest or it can be low in your abdomen. It might be round and large and take up a lot of space or it might be narrow like a column. 
and just notice where the edges of your breath are. If you have more breath in the front of your body, or if you notice any breath in the back. And as you become aware of your breath and the shape that it's making, put your attention on the space between your breath and the area it doesn't fill. So come to the edge of that shape with your awareness. And notice what changes as you put your awareness there. And it's not about efforting. You don't have to try to make your breath bigger. We're examining your breath much like you'd examine a specimen in a lab, taking notes, observing it, describing it. And how high does your breath come up? Does it fill your shoulders? Can you feel your breath moving in your neck? Find the place between your breath at the top and the place where the breath doesn't move. And as you put your awareness on that space, on that line, if you can find a line with your attention, what happens to that line? Does it change your breath at all? Just putting your awareness there? Do you notice the shape getting bigger or smaller? Or does the breath go deeper? Do your ribs move more? And what happens to your shoulders? And then as you've explored your breath, go ahead and bring your awareness to your skin. Your skin covers your whole body. So notice what parts of your skin you feel and what parts don't seem to have as much presence. You can scan your body from your feet up to your knees, across your thighs, your hips and your back and your stomach. and up into your chest where we were just exploring your breath. Feeling how your skin connects down your arms and out your fingers. And how it even covers your neck and your head. And if there are any places that don't have sensation, that you don't feel like you can really get a grasp on with your awareness. Try to find, again, where do those places start? Where does the sensation drift away and the feeling of no sensation or numbness or emptiness? Where does that start? And as you put your awareness on the edges of that sensation, does the numbness expand or shrink? Do you start to feel the areas that didn't have sensation before? Or do they just sort of stay lost? Pay particular attention to the area on your back. Are there any spaces on your back that don't seem to have any sensation? And again, finding the edge. 
Where does the sensation stop? And where does it start? And when you've explored your skin, you can go ahead and slowly come back into the room, letting your eyes wander around a little bit, letting the colors in the space around you come to your eyes, allowing your eyes to rest on any objects or colors or shapes that feel interesting. And then you can notice what's changed for you. How do you feel now after having done that practice? Do you have a better sense of yourself and where you are? You feel a little bit more connected to your body. And you can use this practice, of course, anytime. It's available to you whenever you feel lost or anxious or confused or just plain stressed. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for that, Suki. That was wonderful. I feel a lot more present. And um, so you all can find more out, uh, find out more about Suki at www.sukibaxter.com um, and learn more about the Space Lab at sukibaxter.com forward slash space dash lab. Thank you so much today, Suki, for being on the podcast. And the last thing I, I like to leave listeners with is if there's one thing you want to tell listeners out there, these highly sensitive people who are, you know, trying to create these sensitive pioneering lives, what would that be? I would say that by virtue of you being here alive and living in a body, the space inside your skin belongs to you and nobody else gets to determine what is good or bad inside that space. Only you. Thank you, Suki. Thanks so much. All right, take gentle care. Thank you. For information on everything shared here, including show notes and links, visit www.sensitivityuncensored.com forward slash soul of sensitivity.